Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This show is produced by Ben Murray. Today, we're joined by Sonny Tinsley. Sonny enlisted in the U.S. Army after college to be a combat medic. She did just that, along with some time as a medical and infectious disease researcher. She also earned a second degree in nursing while serving. Since separating, Sonny has worked in oncology and pain management research. She's a great example of a perhaps unlikely soldier who has and continues to make the absolute best of her experience. I think the military, particularly in the Army, we have this amazing culture that kind of teaches us do more, be more, keep doing more. And as we get out, I've seen some soldiers do amazing things, more so on the outside than I ever saw them do on the inside. I'm like, where was this when you were when you were with me? You know, you could have not, you would have avoided so much trouble. This is our first episode in a few months, so thanks for joining us as we dust off the RSS feed. Ben and I look forward to bringing you more quality episodes here as we start off our 2022 season. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Sonny. Thanks for listening. Sonny, thanks for joining us. You're like the fourth person that Noah has booked for us. So we bring we bring him in when we need the big guns to get the uh, big stars on. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. No, I was more than happy to. I was really excited to actually. Yeah. Have you? Uh, how do you know him? I don't. <laughs> it's a funny story. I know Judd. Judd knows okay. Noah. Um, I worked with Judd in the past uh, when I was in San Antonio. So he was like, for some reason, he thinks I'm cool enough to talk. So I was like, let's do it. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that's like a general theme is like uh, most people from the military are like way too modest. Um, and so they don't want to <laughs> they don't want to come on. I, I uh, actually I, I got like a text message from a guy. This might be on our like uh, Instagram because I thought it was funny enough. But uh, I said, hey, when are you going to come on the podcast? He goes, uh, you know, give me some time to accomplish something first. And he's like, he works at like a, you know, tech startup and, and, you know, has made like fully transitioned from the military, all that. So we don't give ourselves enough credit, but, uh, yeah, oh man, yeah, well, that should have been my answer. Cause I'm doing the same thing yeah. he is. Well, uh, yeah, we plan to cover all that. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you're, uh, Noah said that you're originally from Texas and I know being an army medic, you probably spend some time, uh, in and out of Texas. But uh, do you want to just like maybe we'll go into what life was like before the army, maybe growing up uh, or your decision to join or where you were in your life? Yeah, definitely. So actually, I'm going to backtrack and make an adjustment to that. So I actually grew up in California, born on the East Coast, born in actually New York, uh, raised out there for like the first couple of years. Parents decided it was way too cold for them. So uh, ended up in middle of nowhere, California, small town called Tulare. More cows than people. Um, it was definitely an experience growing up. It was a very unique experience. So I am first generation. I'm Indian. Uh, I grew up with parents who are very accomplished, both, you know, with the physician background. Uh, so definitely had that strict traditional Indian upbringing. It was very much uh, focused on school. School was everything. Um, sports were a privilege. Okay. There's no doubt about it. But my parents were very keen on making sure that we had a well-rounded upbringing, which I can tell you, culturally speaking, that is not um, 
very prominent in our family or in our culture. You girls don't grow up playing sports. Uh, they don't grow up riding horses or playing with the boys when it comes to football or soccer. We're very much told to like stay indoors, go to school, get good grades, become a doctor and then get married to someone you don't know. <laughs> so that was uh, definitely something my parents didn't push as much. But school was a big thing for my sibling and I. Uh, we really, really focused on school. Straight A's were a big thing. Uh, growing up, like I said, first generation, very, very cultured. So, you know, we didn't go out much. It was always like school, sports. You have straight A's, you can play sports. Uh, if you want to do anything, you have to have the father's permissions. Very cultured upbringing, very sheltered upbringing. A lot of the movies, my husband will tell you that I didn't know that I should have known by like age 16 that I hadn't seen. Um, he has to catch me up on them now because, you know, it wasn't a very American upbringing for me. It was very Indian American upbringing. Okay. So I missed out on that aspect growing up quite a bit. But you, did you play uh, so, some sports or like were there some areas where there was like a little more um, freedom? And then like, what do you, what do you think the source mm -hmm. of that was uh, for your parents just trying to, you know, be like, hey, we're in a new country. Let's branch out a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. So, you know, my father, he came here after residency from medical school. So he came later in his years. My parents had arranged marriage. I can really carp on that answer by telling you this is my mom grew up here in the States. She came when she was 13. So they had a, my mom had more of a Western influence in her upbringing, per yeah. se. So my mom was very much the one to tell my dad, no, I want the girls to be active, you know, with obesity rates on the on the rise and my mom was like, no, it's okay. It's normal for girls to be out and playing here. So she was really that advocate to tell my father, let's put her in sports. Let's put them in sports and see what happens. And I started, I was really, I would like to think I was pretty good um, at playing soccer and basketball, volleyball. You named it, I played it, but really excelled particularly in softball and basketball. It's where I played all through high school, uh, played a little bit in college. Um, kept me active. And my parents' uh, biggest thing was, is if you don't have straight A's, you're not going to play. So uh, like I said, it really just came back to that school part. But it really shaped me um, as far as understanding what a typical American kid should be doing, because all my friends were, uh, you know, pretty much farmers and dairy owner families. And so I kind of got an exposure to, oh, this is what a normal family in America would be like, not a typical Indian family. My idea of the American dream was very convoluted. Uh, the society my parents raised us in was predominantly all Indian doctors. Their kids were in the same boat as me. Uh, we really didn't have that outside influence to shape it much, except for what we saw at school. So, I mean, like you said that most of the kids you knew were like farmers and, uh, but you also had this, was it like just an insulated community of, uh, of, very much so. Okay. Yeah. Like, uh, Indian doctors and, uh, anyone other than doctors like lawyers and no, everyone just practice in medicine. Oh. Pretty much medicine. So where I grew up, 90% uh, of my parents' friends to this day, same friends we've had growing up, all doctors. Uh, my dad is a pediatrician, you know, his friends are cardiologists, you name it. They're just a doctor of some type. That's the community. We had a few friends, I think, that did business, but really didn't stray outside that community. It was pretty tight-knit in that sense. Uh, any party, any social event, it was predominantly with that culture, with that community. It was never, I never actually went to like, a, per se, like an American or Caucasian wedding in my life uh, up until last year, really. Oh, yeah. We, uh, so yeah. did you uh, did you go to college before the army or after? 
I or did both. Yeah, both. Uh, I, both. both yeah. <laughs> uh, I did both. Uh, so before, oh man, uh, college. I went to college, small private school in Southern California, and I was pretty much told you're going to be doing a science. We want you to be some type of medicine. You don't really know what medicine, but you better pursue some type of it, whether it's physical therapy, MD, nurse, uh, some going down that route. It's the only exposure I really had in my life was either medicine, law, engineering. Um, And you'll see most people of Indian descent usually go down that route. They don't really stray from that. It's my generations that's trying to really break that mold. But yeah, so I went to college. I did my four years and I got a bachelor's of science in Kines. I was pre-PT. I was ready to start physical therapy school. And I was actually that summer right before I was supposed to go that I made the decision to join the army instead. Before we get into the army decision, like just a couple questions. One as what do you think the, I guess the, the basis for, you know, engineering medicine, uh, these kind of like very pragmatic, um, uh, careers and then, Two, like, did you have a lot of, like, um, family expectations or pressure early on? Very much so. So to answer your first question, yes, uh, in India in particular, uh, because we're my generation is the newest generation really to be here in the States, our parents, the exposure has always been success equals STEM. If you want to have money, if you want to live a lavish lifestyle, you're going to pursue a STEM field. The liberal arts and just arts in general, arts, histories, um, you know, social studies, that was not the emphasis because that didn't equal success in those eyes. So the focus for us culturally has always been, okay, if you're an engineer, if you're a lawyer, businessman, doctor, you'll have money, which equates to you getting married and having a family. A lot of it is that that's a societal norm there. And it's something that was transferred over here in that generation, in our parents' generation, that, hey, we have to teach our kids the same thing. It'll be easier for them to do it in the States uh, and become successful here because they have more opportunities here. So really our parents, and not just mine, I say ours as in my friends, you know, my peers that were raised the same way I was, they ex- were exposed to the same thing. They said, okay, if we bring Indian values and, and that emphasis of STEM, mm-hmm. But with the ease of the states, with all the opportunities in the states, they'll be just as successful and they'll have money, they'll get married and they'll have kids. That is really the goal for our parents to my generation. There was nothing else except to you have to make money, you have to become a doctor, you'll have status or a title. And then that way someone will want to marry you and you can have a family. That's their idea of you becoming accomplished. Was there uh, like at what point in your life, I guess, did you just determine that, hey, I actually want to get married or like on my own terms, or did it just come, you know, later and wasn't always a goal of yours from, you know, very early? So very early on, I was, I'll tell you right now, I was the rebel of the family. Oh man, was I the rebel? Uh, I definitely fought every value, fought every stigma, every expectation that my parents had to be that typical Indian girl. I knew early on that, you know what, I don't want to get married right off the bat. I don't want to have an arranged marriage. I want to have a love marriage. I was one of the first people in my family to not just have a love marriage, but also marry out of the culture. My husband's Caucasian, not Indian. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I knew very early on that I wasn't going to fall in that spectrum. I knew that it could potentially ostracize me from my community. That was also something I had to acknowledge. I had to acknowledge that I might lose people I've known my whole life or even my own family members by making that decision. But I knew very early on that 
I was going to probably pave my own way, whether it cost me everything or not. Wow. It's, I, I thought, you know, it's, uh, eye opening hearing that it's like that, uh, you know, emphasized where you could lose relationships over it versus just like, uh, you know, I think we all have family members who like nag us and push us one way or the other, but it's that strong, uh, going back to this point where you're finishing up school. So you said you were pre PT. Can we go, can we, uh, explore a decision to join the army after undergrad? Yes, absolutely. So this was between my senior, it was my senior year. I just started junior, just finished up the summer, starting my senior year of college. And I lost someone really close to me uh, who served in the military, very close to me, actually. And I never understood the reason why he loved it so much. I never, because the military was not something I was exposed to ever in my life. I didn't really know anybody in the military Culturally speaking, you don't see very many Indian people in the military. So um, I didn't understand it. I didn't understand the concept of it all. Uh, then I started to research it some more. And I was like, man, I really need to understand what is so. what was so amazing about it. Why did he love it so much? Uh, what was the purpose behind it? And the more I read about it, the more I tried to understand it, the more, honestly, the inspiring it was for me. I was like, man, these sound like my people. These are the people that, you know, create a life for themselves. They come from nothing and can create anything they want just based on hard work. It's not so much a privilege. And I won't lie. I was born into that privilege. My parents were already successful uh, by the time I came around. So I never really had to work hard for anything. And that would have been my way. I thought, man, if I join and I become something, it's the first time in my life I've accomplished something that wasn't spoon fed to me on a silver platter uh, that people won't be like, oh, because her parents had money or because she had everything handed to her, she has this or she has success. It really was my first chance to create my own success. That's great. I, I always tell people like, uh, I think the military is one of the best either upward um, socioeconomic vehicles for, for that type of people or um, uh, just like a way to restart, reinvent yourself or, or forge your own path. Like you described, uh, it actually kind of sounds like, uh, the, uh, the first of the new Batman when he, you know, he leaves everything and goes to live in the mountains and, uh, like scrounge for food and stuff. Um, but has that, you know, I, the military brings that like sense of yeah, accomplishment <laughs> for yourself, uh, which, you know, um, can be lacking sometimes. Yeah, definitely. For me, it was, you know, a lot of people see the military as like a last choice. You know, I graduated high school. What do I do now? Let me go join the army because I have nothing else or the Marines or whatever you decide to join. For me, it was my first choice. Uh, it was something that I saw opportunity in as a very young individual right at a college. You know, I wasn't 18. I was 21. Mm -hmm. But I saw it as an opportunity. I was like, they offer so much potential for growth. Why not take the chance and see if I can do it? Yeah. And I'm sure that, uh, other people fire this question at you. So I'll just, uh, you know, l let me know Definitely. if I'm being too worn out, but you graduated college. So why no. not be an officer? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked that question. You know, I'll tell you what, um, I really wanted to, I wanted to be an officer. Actually. I thought about it right off the bat. I said, look, it comes with this title, this prestige, this honor. And I realized I can't touch patients. I have a pre-PT degree. I don't have an MD. I don't have a DPT. I didn't want to wait another three years. What's the one way of getting me to be able to take care of people and get that hands-on experience? 
And I asked them, they said, you can go in as a medic. And I said, okay, sign me up. Whatever way I could to quickly get to patient mm-hmm. care and get that exposure to see, am I supposed to be a PT? Am I supposed to be a medic? Am I supposed to be a nurse? Because truthfully, when I graduated, I knew inside that I don't think I'm supposed to be a physical therapist. I don't even know what I want to be. I'm 21 years old. I didn't know at 18. The only thing I knew at 21 is like, okay, I can drink now. That was about it. Uh, So I knew if I had enlisted, that was the quickest way for me to start taking care of people. I didn't think at that point about the money or the title or any of that. It didn't matter to me. So this was the quickest way for me to get exposure to a field that is this going to be my career or am I going down the wrong hole? That's also like a fantastic point. Yeah, you should. I mean, we're like 10 minutes into the interview, but you should just mentor young people who are going to join the military. Because <laughs> honestly, and it's kind of like that, uh, almost like the same rationale for community college, right? Before, like, try something out right. and have a manageable lifestyle um, and then like use it as a vehicle to figure out what you actually want to do, um, before, you know, sinking too much of a, uh, an investment in something that you may not want to do. Definitely. Actually, I kind of recommend it for a lot of my friends who are, have kids or friends who are actually starting to go to college well after I had already been in. I said, you know what, if I could do it all over again, I would go to a junior college for two years. If my, it didn't, if I didn't think it would make my parents disappointed and wouldn't ruin their name and, oh my God, so-and-so's daughter went to a junior college. Cause that's also a thing. It's when we graduate in our culture, I was like, whose kids going to these big name schools? Are you going to UCLA? Are you going to UC Berkeley? You know, they, in the community, that's what they care about is whose kids doing what for me, I would have been like, go to a junior college, figure out those two years by taking electives and classes. You never thought you would take like, um, you know, auto body or take a home ec class, you know, learn something, a life skill and see if you like it. And if you take, let's say you take biology and you hate it. Well, I'll tell you what, if you're going to try to be a doctor, you're going to take a whole lot of biology and you're going to hate it the entire time. So um, I really, really wish people would actually go to a junior college and give it more credit because I think it deserves it. Yeah, like a tenth of the cost too. Yeah, save some money. Ben, can you hear the dogs fighting in the other room? No? Okay, cool. I'm surprised. Mine are being quiet right now. I have three of them. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, I know. Three dogs, what kind? I have a blackmouth cur. They're all rescues. So one's a blackmouth cur. She's like a nice 60-pounder. I have a Australian Kelpie, which showed up on our front lawn, and we said, oh, we'll foster her. You know how that yeah. ended up. So she's part Followed of the family. me home from school, and- I swear. <laughs> yes, that's a when my husband was like, you know, we'll just foster her. We'll see if she, we can find her family. And by like week two, I was like, nope, she's staying. I don't care. She's part of our family now. Um, and then I have a little baby one. She's like a Lady Charles Cocker Spaniel mix. And she's like a nice 25 pounds. Nice. Uh, a nice little uh, Motley yeah. crew there. Uh, it is. Yeah. So wait, was Noah right about you being from Texas or just completely wrong? No, no, no. So I, I do live, I've been living in Texas. I grew up in California, you know, and my husband and I settled in Texas and we're only here. We're only in California to go to grad school and then I'm getting the heck out of here. Uh, Back to Texas. Back to Texas. Definitely. I don't think I fit in too well here. Okay. Uh, so, all right. I'm just, uh, validating our Intel because he also said that your grandfather was an ambassador. (laughs) 
Yes. So we have some family that worked. Um, Yes, he is correct about that. Um, So yes, we have family that worked in the government. I still do have family that works in government. Great grandfather also worked for the government, but this was all in India. Uh, So a huge part of my family was there before they moved here. So when my family moved here on my father's side, um, he kind of retired out of that. My grandfather, my father was already a doctor at that time. And in our culture, when you have a son, when he finishes his schooling, his responsibilities take care of his mm-hmm. family. And so, um, you know, him and my mom had an arranged marriage. Uh, they moved back. To, my dad came to the States. And then my grandfather and grandmother, uh, they actually kind of raised me because my parents both worked. Uh, hence why I speak a few languages. And um, that was that's actually a huge part of my life. It's a huge part of why I am the way I am. It's because of my grandparents on both sides of the family. Oh, yeah. What, uh, what other languages? So this should be fun. So I speak my mother tongue or my primary language is Gujarati. Uh, I grew up, my my maiden name is Shah. So I actually grew up speaking Gujarati, Hindi. I understand Urdu. Um, I understand Arabic and Farsi. And then I also, bits and parts of Dari. I'm fluent in Spanish and English. That's uh, that's too much. <laughs> that's too much. <laughs> I promise they have a lot of similarities. They're not the same, but they have similarities. Why, uh, yeah, okay, so now we just know that you secretly work for the CIA. Oh okay. no! So uh, I, I want to, you know, since we'll, uh, I don't want to touch too much on family, but it's a huge, you know, topic so far. But yeah, like, absolutely. How much support did you get when? You know, when joining, I see that you're smirking already. But what kind of event I'm was already, that? Yes. <laughs> I try not to wear my emotions on my sleeve. It was actually a monumental thing. So when I told my family what that I wanted to join the military, that I wanted to join the army in particular, they actually kind of laughed it off like I was joking. We were on a vacation in Cancun. It's probably because we were on a vacation in Cancun in summer. And we were all just sitting on the beach and we were just talking. And I, I kind of looked to my parents and it was my parents, myself, my sister and my grandmother. And I looked to my parents and I had said, you know, I when we get back, like I'm going to sign the paperwork. I think I want to join the army when I graduate. And they kind of laughed and they were like, yeah, yeah, we'll talk about it when we get back. My grandmother, she doesn't speak English, so I didn't really want to explain it to their, her then to create that scene because I already knew that it was going to have an automatic disapproval right off the bat. My sister, actually, uh, she is she's the world to me. We're polar opposites, but she's actually my rock through everything. My sister talked to me and she's the only one that took me seriously, didn't laugh at it. And she said, okay, like, why do you want to do this? You know, what, what's so important about it? Um, it's a big deal. And she actually, she was the only person that ever really asked me, uh, even when we got back and I had already signed the paperwork and my parents knew at that point I was going to go. Uh, I don't think it really registered yet. We had told friends and family and they were like the army, you can do so many other things, you know, or honestly, a lot of it was like, they didn't think I was going to make it. You know, I grew up in this what people would call princess lifestyle. Why would someone like me join the army? You know, so people didn't take me seriously. They kind of laughed a lot about it. They were like, oh, okay, yeah, whatever. It's just her next, her next semi-adventure. She'll probably quit. And that was not the case. Um, so when I did join, I was met, or when I did actually sign the paperwork, it was automatically met with a lot of disapprovals, a lot of questions, a lot of disbelief, I think is the right word. Did this, uh, this like family interaction or sorry, like when people told you you couldn't do it or they didn't think you could do it or is the flavor of the week. Uh, 
how much did that just solidify, you know, that you're like, okay, well now there's no question. You know, honestly, in the beginning, it didn't. I really started to doubt myself. I said, okay, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe I'm not as strong as I thought. Yeah, I played sports, but it takes a whole nother level of strength to get through something like the military. It's a lifestyle change. It really is. It's a huge lifestyle change. A lot of people don't come from the background that I came from going into the military. They come from a not so great background or, you know, an okay background. A lot of people are like, why are you doing that? They In our culture, in my community, it was almost like a downgrade. Like, why are you doing this? Uh, or what about your family name? You know, right. or what is everyone going to think? It's like the old John Kerry quote. Like if you're, you know, if you're, uh, you can go to college or if you're poor, you can get stuck in the military, which is terrible. For, but uh, I think everyone knows about that. Yes, I did. And it's funny because that's actually what people in my my community or my family's my parents community i don't like to call it mine because it is not mine anymore it is my parents would believe you know they think okay if you're a doctor you come from a great family if you your daughter becomes a doctor she can marry into a great family or if she becomes something she can marry into a great family if she doesn't then she's not going to marry into a good family or she's not going to amount to anything but you know initially like i had said it really kind of brought some doubts into me but my sisters, like I said, my sister was the one who said, don't don't listen to them. Most of them are stay at home wives who, you know, like to gossip about other people's kids because they truly not, had nothing better to do. I'll tell you, my mom is probably one of the few that actually has a degree from a very prestigious university. My mom graduated from UC Berkeley with a biology degree. My mom worked in genetics um, and research. She was very, very smart. Um, but the company she kept, I wasn't exactly fond of, I'll be honest. Uh, so they decided to put, you know, they, your, your environment influences the way you think my mom was in that environment. And so she started to doubt my ability to make my own decisions. At that point, I'm 21 years old in the American culture at 18, you're an adult in the Indian culture. You're not an adult until you're married and have three kids. So, um, I definitely in their eyes was not an adult yet. So I made the decision anyway, and I went against my parents' wishes when I made that decision. They kept asking me, are you sure? Is this what you want to do? Or, you know, there's so many other things you can do. This isn't your only option. I never saw it that way. You know, I saw it as one of the biggest opportunities on the planet. I can go in somewhere and they'll train me and they're paying me to train me to do something I already know I want to do and then give me the ability to do anything I want and they'll pay for it. That's how I thought about it is that I will go through this program, get the ability to earn an additional degree without having to rely on mom and dad to pay for it. So that was actually really my motivating factor to make sure I went through with it. Yeah, I uh, so I pulled up like an old article that you were uh, featured in. So let me know if you know this is too old or it's like five or six years. Uh, but you said that. Oh, gosh. Uh, so you're you're talking about um, you know being a, a combat medic, and so you you know your uh, your your uh, job code was like combat medic, and then you moved into I think uh, a little more research afterwards. But you said uh, being Indian in America is hard enough and all the stereotypes that come with it don't make it easy any easier, but the army's different. Um, they see your character, your drive and your ability to succeed. So did you, did you, uh, well, first, you know, confirm that you still believe in that, but also like how soon did you start to realize this and embrace it? And was there any point where like, you know, maybe you didn't, you didn't think so, or, or were you gung ho the whole time? 
You know, I still believe in that. I would say about 99%. I won't give you the full 100 and I'll explain to you in a moment why. But 99% of me absolutely 100% believes that. Like, there's not a doubt in my mind that if I hadn't joined the army, I would not be where I'm at today. That is a true statement right there. The 1% where I do have that, where I had an issue with that now on the hindsight, you know, hindsight 2020 coming out of it, going to a couple different places, is that I think talent management could be better in the military. I think the inability to recognize potential in individuals based on their rank is something the army still needs to work on. Um, Rank does not automatically tell you or equate to intelligence or to experience. Uh, Because I came in, I was educated. (laughs) I came from a good family. And just because I was enlisted did not mean I had a difficult upbringing or I didn't have certain things. And until people really knew me, the assumption was, is, oh, she's just another E4 or just another E5. Little did they know the background that I did have. So I think that the Army needs to recognize that, yes, character is important. Rank is important. Definitely respect it. You earn that title or you earn your rank. I do respect that, too. But you should also dive deeper into knowing the individual because they may bring more to the table than what meets the eye. And you have to be able to evaluate that. I think a good leader should be able to recognize and evaluate that. And I didn't see that so much until maybe towards the end of my career. Yeah. Definitely. We've talked a lot about like officer versus enlisted and uh, not even just in the army for, cause we have like a lot of smart people on the program. Right. So like, you know, mm-hmm. th- those of us who like intellectually weren't from central, central casting to being enlisted. And that's, you know, might sound disparaging, but hopefully it does. It's not because I was too. Um, but yeah, it's something we talk about, you know, even after the military is is like, you know, job opportunities for enlisted people and and kind of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, them looking at you and, and, and even like judging you post-military too. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I mean, when did you, you said later on um, it started to be better. So what was it that kind of made people see you for your talents um, was it like building personal relationships or just like, you know, uh, demonstrated performance within a unit building reputation? Uh, you can say that. So let me backtrack to where I went before. Cause my military career has been actually very unique in that of comparison to others, because right out of AIT, as you know, when you're enlisted medics, don't go to the places, to the place that I went. I was actually the only one of 330 people to go where I did. Everybody else went to like a BCT or they went to, hey, I'm going to, you know, um, I'm going to Fort Hood or I'm going to I'm going out to El Paso. I'll see you out there. You know, I didn't they get go to that. like a line, like a to... line unit. Yeah, they go to a like line a, unit or like, like a cl- or a major installation or something like that. Absolutely. And they go to a major installation because, you know, these are young medics. They're going to need to be developed. Obviously, they're coming right out of school. School does not equate to real life and what you're actually going to be doing. I didn't have that. I went actually straight to a place called Fort Detrick, Maryland. I worked at a place called USAMRID, which if you're not familiar with, is the Army's Institute for Medical Research and Infectious Diseases. Uh, I worked as pretty much a 68 Tango rather than a 68 Whiskey. I worked as a vet tech. So my exposure there, I was like, why am I a medic working in research on monkeys? Why am I working on primates? And I didn't understand it. I, I really didn't. And I was like, this is this, this their idea of talent management. Is this their idea of spending thousands of dollars on my training? 
and then sending me to do something that's completely out of my scope of practice. Little did I know that it was going to shape the rest of me, you know? So that's when I was like, oh, it's not so great for me. I was honestly, I was kind of miserable because that's, I wasn't, I didn't grow up around animals. I didn't have pets at that point in my life. I've never had a pet. And so I never worked with animals. I was scared to. That was one of my fears is, man, I'm working with these primates and I'm, you know, doing infectious disease work. Can you imagine the fear going through me? Um, I'd much rather be taking care of screaming people and, you know, body parts and limbs because I've been exposed to that my whole life. That's my comfort zone. Um, I can do that. Just not monkeys. So that's at that point, that's where I was going to tell you is what it kind of came back to is that I at that point was like, oh man, the army is terrible at talent management. This is this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. Little did I know it was going to change when I got to Fort Sam. Mm. Yeah. What was the thing that had them send you to the infectious disease center, like straight out of training? So I came into the army with an active TSSEI. I did come in with that. I also came into the army with a degree in sciences. I had, you know, a minor in bio, a major in kines. I don't know if that's how they evaluated me into thinking, oh, she might be, she'd be a good candidate to go do this. Um, Cause I was just like any other college student. I was just trying to graduate. Just a college student so with a top was, secret clearance. <laughs> something like that. I initially was slotted to go Intel till I changed my mind to whiskey to be a whiskey, but they gave me, they had already done my oh, clearance. Okay. Um, my family also um, holds those clearances based on their prior work. And so it, for me, it was just renewing it. Um, but yeah, so going into it, I was like, okay, it's not like they're going to send me to a research. I didn't even know the army had a research institution. If I'm being honest, I was not well-versed on that. I was like, yes, I'm going to go to like a real unit. I'm going to get to do my actual job. I'm going to take care of people. I can't wait to deploy. I can use my skill set. I can speak different languages. Heck, I would have been an asset for a lot of people based on the languages I speak and the skill sets I had. And that's not the opportunity that was presented to me initially. Um, so it was... It was a little discouraging, if I'm being honest. Did you ever get a chance to like use your language skills like later on? Okay. I did. When I got to Fort Sam, I definitely did. So I got to Army South, and that's actually where I had met, um, you know, Judd, and that's where I had met a lot of different people in different and very different roles, vastly different roles. The exposure was there. We had got more generals and more star majors in one building than I've ever seen in my life. Um, everybody wanted to bark orders, very few people to execute them. But because of my skill set, I was able to accompany on a lot of interesting missions, uh, particularly in Central and South America, and utilize that skill set, whether it came to teaching and training uh, trauma medicine or evaluating the techniques of those who are based overseas. I think it was interesting to see how people utilize the resources they had versus what we have and how do we work with them when they don't have at least 70% of the things we have here. So not only trying to teach them to use what they have, but in a foreign language, that was the challenge for me. I actually invited that challenge. Yeah. That, uh, so um, I used to be a special forces medic. So it's like right up our alley. Uh, I remember I was training uh, in some country who had just created like a special forces unit, right? And uh, you would look at this mm -hmm. and think like, this is not a special forces unit, but you know, you should have seen the regular <laughs> forces. Um, <laughs> and their, uh, their medics were equipped with like uh, a stretcher and like a box of loose gauze 
and like a gallon of water mm -hmm. and they're like this is our medical kit yeah, okay well how do i find a way to train people on their own kit you know so mm -hmm. yeah so oh, we're doing, gonna do a lot of casualty transporting in this uh in this little block of training here but uh, also in another language uh i mean yeah i speak german so they all speak english better than me that's um but uh you you actually speak useful languages so that must be must have been rewarding. no well as of lately probably not i think i need to pick up russian nowadays so um but i'll be honest with you you know it wasn't just that exposure i mean i grew up going to india quite often I, my parents made sure we were well traveled and having that exposure it's crazy that India mass produces doctors and they all come here. I'll tell you that. But you go to India and you try to see the resources they have and the limitations they have in their medical um, and their hospital and the medical supplies. You'll be surprised. Mm. You're, and that's me not being in the military, trying to utilize and teach them, hey, what can I do to help you? And I look at it. and I was like, I don't know what I can do. You really have to bring that innovation and ingenuity. And I don't think and you know this as a medic. You really can't be a medic if you don't have the ability to be innovative on the spot because you're not always going to have what you yeah. need. Uh, you have to create it, you know, and I'm sure from what I've learned uh, in some places, you're prepared to take care of adults and you're presented with kids. You know, you have PD patients and I'm like, how am I going to use these, you know, um, chest tubes? How am I going to use these, you know, these instruments that are designed for males 18 to 45 yeah. on 10 year olds, five year olds, two year olds, newborns? Yeah, I, uh, I've done some like, uh, inventive, uh, wound dressing myself. Actually, one of our first guests, uh, buddy of mine, Monty, he was a SF medic, uh, you know, earlier than earlier than me, but like, uh, one of, one of the first teams into Afghanistan after, uh, you know, nine 11 and, um, he starts talking about doing some like dental work. I know it's back in that episode. So, but he's like, yeah, I didn't make tools. I was just kind of, you know, yeah, seeing what I seeing what I could make happen. But that's like, uh, I don't know. I think that's what gives a lot of us like the energy to do that kind of job though. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, um, let me get the chronology right. So when do you get your mm -hmm. second uh, degree? Is this still on active duty? Or uh, I know that yes. you, you did some like reserve time too, or is there something during your active duty time that we haven't covered? No, I actually started my BSN while I was on active duty. Uh, believe it or not, I started an accelerated three-year BSN program uh, in my last year of active duty. I kind of knew right then and there I wanted to be a nurse. Um, at that point, I wasn't ready. I was like, I don't think I'm ready for med school. This is not the route I want to go just yet. A lot of it is seeing the docs that I worked with, the PAs that I've worked with. I had the opportunity to apply for PA school. It was it was already recommended for it, but I kind of, you had to remember the medical model, nursing model, very different. And with what I wanted to do, I really wanted to spend time with my patients. You know, I wanted to be there at the point of injury. Okay, they're evaluated, they're assessed, uh, treatment, implementation, follow-up care. I wanted to be there. I like the continuity of care. I knew I would get that as a nurse, and I wouldn't necessarily get that as a PA or a doctor. Um, so for me, it was really crucial to be there through all points of healing. So that's why I decided to go and get my BSN. And I said, heck, why not? They're willing to pay for it. Yeah. I'll yeah. do it. And so it's the first degree I feel like I truly accomplished on my own. I earned it on my own. Um, and to me, I performed better in that in that program than I did in the previous one. You have this like really vocational approach um, versus what some people 
you know, might take like a prestige approach to just say, well, what is the best sounding thing that I can try to be and aspire to that? And uh, mm-hmm. uh, if I'm right on this, big ups to my um, uh, high school Latin teacher, Mr. Trombley, but vocation is like, uh, it's like your calling, right? I think that's what the translation is. And so to hear you work through like, uh, you know, uh, the, like your, your reasoning at each one of these steps, I still think that you should spend a lot of time mentoring because uh, it's like, it's great to hear, you know? Well, thank you. I actually would like to do that. There was a, I'm so glad you actually brought that up because it has been crossing my mind lately is, yeah, it's great to be a nurse and I'm really happy to take care of people. I'm not your traditional nurse and we'll get into that here in a bit. But I really love taking care of people. I like to inspire people. Um, I like to tell people it doesn't matter the background you come from. You can literally do anything you want to do. It's a beautiful, this is a the beautiful thing about living here, which a lot of people don't know or they take for granted is you can go anywhere else in the world. And I promise you, I will not get to do half of what I've done at this by at this age. I'd be doing something very different. Um, so I think it's really important to bring that, especially to the youth today. I don't think they have the types of role models that we did when we were growing up. It's changed. Well, they all want to be like YouTube stars instead of astronauts, which yes. makes me throw up. <laughs> I agree. I'm in the same boat. We idolize the wrong people. And we've, as a generation, we taught them to idolize that, right? So we should be doing the parenting. And I don't see much of the actual parenting going on. I see more of parents wanting to be their kids' best friends or have them be on their TikTok videos. It's not a way of, for me, that's not, that's not the way I would parent my child. Yeah. But I don't have kids yet, so who knows? Well, I will tell you that I may have mentioned this before. I'm just repeating myself, but I'll jump at any opportunity to tell uh, a parent like how much the military can do for their kid and destigmatize it for them. Yes, because we need we need Definitely. more people saying that, and especially like uh, you know to toot our own horn, like more enlisted people saying that too. And you could do you know you could do Definitely. three years, you could do ten, you could do twenty, and uh, it's still just like you know so much purpose and, and upward mobility or actually finding exactly what you want to do. You know, I'm so glad you bring that up. And I know you've touched on it twice is being enlisted versus officer and why I chose one over the other. But being honest with you, being enlisted, I feel like I had more opportunity. It doesn't really matter if you were enlisted or an officer. I mean, if you have a, I hate to say it, if you have a degree as an officer that you've utilized in the military and you reach a certain rank, that's great. But when you come out, what are you going to do? Great. You've had your retirement, but how applicable is your degree? Is it an actual functional degree that you can go into the field and utilize it? So yeah, you make, let's say, Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel, you even make your general. All right, we'll see you in on the VP side of management in some company. And that's great. But as an enlisted soldier, you're telling me that, hey, I have a four-year degree that I can go pay for. Okay, cool. In this day and age, if it was me, either go get a science degree you know, go get your BSN, go get, you know, go become a PA or a doc or go get a cybersecurity degree. Guess what? You'll be doing just as much as the guy who is a colonel that's retired, you know, or you'll be making just as much. Um, I think the emphasis has gone so much onto the rank rather than the application of the degree that they have. I think you can have a career change at any age. You know, my husband did 12 years as he wasn't a special forces medic, but he was, you know, he was a medic, um, you know, and he had an amazing career. He was that guy from went from one amazing duty station to the next. And when he got out, he was like, I'm going to be a PA. And 
he knew immediately 12 years in that, hey, like, I, I know this is what I'm going to do. And that's exactly what he's doing. And you can have a career. Like I said, you can have a career change at any age. He's in mid thirties and he's doing it for himself. And so um, I don't think I, I hate that we've stigmatized age with uh, careers. You know, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Yeah. Did, uh, did you guys meet on the job, I'm guessing, or in training or uh, just like uh, sharing a community? Yeah, we actually met on the job. So when I went through Fort Sam, um, I had met him initially while I was there. And then when I left and I got assigned to Dietrich, I had a, a TDY that I was on. And we had a mutual friend. We connected actually via Facebook. I know through the online community, we connected via Facebook and we started talking and we've been together ever since. And he's my best friend. Uh, definitely would not be where I'm at without him. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, we've talked to people before with like uh, dual military households and that uh, I know mm -hmm. that every, you know, household is uh, is having to make decisions together. But dual military mm -hmm. is a little interesting because you're making decisions together, but you also have people making decisions for each one of you that uh, you have yes. maybe varying control over. Yes, that was a big one. So actually it impacted us for a short time, maybe a year because he was on his way out the door. He was retiring. Um, he was medically retiring at the time. So he got out of the military as I had just started my career. So it was easy for us in that sense is that maybe a year we were apart. And then I actually moved to San Antonio and we'd been together since and he had already started school. So it wasn't the military so much dictating now is the military plus education kind of dictating where we were at and where we were going to end up. And so it was, I wish I could have said it was the same lifestyle. It was two separate lifestyles at that point, you know, one as a student and, and one as a medic. Mm -hmm. um, and that did have its own difficulties. I think too, is understanding that balance. Do you want to talk about uh, your own kind of transition out maybe to from full to reserve or blending it in with education. And then uh, this also going from, you know, early on you were pre PT thought you maybe wanted to be a PT to where now you're, you're saying, okay, well now I have my nursing degree. And then I think you move into uh, more research. So, so, yeah, you know, where you end up versus where you think you were going to start. So transition for me was actually really seamless, very unique for me. I already knew before I got out, like, look, I'm in nursing school. I knew I was going to have my, you know, the stipend for school. I'm using my GI bill. I was doing that, but I also liked that sense of security. So I had already secured a full-time job before I'd even started terminal leave. I had secured my job, signed the contract. I knew I was going to go back into, I knew I was going to stay in the medical field. I just didn't know if I was going to go back into research. So I took up this like travel, kind of like a travel medic gig. Uh, for a little while, stayed local, got some more exposure. And I was like, yeah, I definitely still want to stay in medicine, but I kind of miss research. And at that time, you know, for me, transition was smooth. I was in San Antonio. We were going to stay in San Antonio. My husband was in school in San Antonio. I was in school in San Antonio. So we never had to really about moving to a different state or going back to my home of record, nothing like that. So that took off a huge stress for us. But for now, I'm like, oh, man, I have to get a job that's going to give us medical insurance, you know, that's going to give us health care, dental, vision, all of that. You start to worry about that stuff, your retirement, because I didn't I wasn't a lifer. I didn't stay in long enough. And going into the reserves, you don't get all those benefits. Um, so that 
that was a big, that I think that's what worried me the most is where's my major source of income going to come from? Because when you have a family, that GI Bill stipend is not enough to maintain that, yeah. you know? So uh, definitely secured a job there, ended up transferring into an amazing career with Southwest Oncology Group. I loved working for them. It's where I really developed my research skills. And it's where I actually fell back in love with research and realized, oh man, oncology research is kind of amazing. It's such an innovative field. So I worked my way up. I became a project manager there, became a junior, then senior project manager while I was going to school full-time. So I was working full-time 40 hours a week, and I was also going to school full-time. Did not have a lot of free time, but it taught me that, you know, I don't know if I want to do, do I have to be a bedside nurse? And that's where I started researching. Is there another avenue for nursing? What can I do with this degree that doesn't require me to be in a hospital? Well, as I started to work in the field, I was like, oh, wow, there's nurse auditors. There's these associate directors, directors of major pharmaceutical companies, all with nursing degrees. How did they get into this? And so I started working with them and I started kind of just pinging them and being like, hey, how do you do this? What can I do with this? Look, I have a military background. I was a medic in the military, but I'm a new nurse. I don't have 10 years of nursing experience, but I do have, you know, four years in active duty, four years in the reserves. What can I do with this? And they said, oh, no, we love military. We, You guys have such a unique experience. And I feel like the military during the transition process doesn't really harp on the soldiers to tell them how unique your experience really is. You are one of very few individuals that has exposure to your line of work in such an extensive way that on the civilian side, they don't have that. And the ability for us to work under pressure comes a lot more naturally than our civilian counterparts. So highlighting skill sets that I think are undervalued in the military, but definitely valued on the civilian side, it's important to highlight that. And I don't think we had someone to teach us that, or at least soldiers that as they're coming out. And that goes enlisted and officer across the spectrum. So I feel like a lot of those skill sets get lost in translation. But I stayed in research, I graduated, and then I got this amazing offer to take it up a notch in the research realm and work for an Australian biotech company. So it's an international biotech company as their senior clinical research associate here in the States and working my way up into a director position. And I told myself before I'm 30, I want to be a director. That was it. And luckily I was able to make that happen, but working for a company, not only that's an internationally based company working in nanotech and biotech, but that focuses on developing medications for veterans. I think that's awesome. Their focus is to treat chronic pain, pain and depression and PTSD symptoms for veterans. Nice. We uh, <clears throat> certainly a lot of topics there. And I, I did find uh, like a yes. video of you <laughs> talking about pain management um, that we'll get into <laughs> right here. But first, I am pretty curious about like, just day in the life of like medical researcher. Cause you, you know, you've mm -hmm. done infectious disease, you moved on to oncology. Now you're in like right. bio and nano med uh, saying that like I pretend I know what it is, um, for like pain <laughs> management and stuff like that. So what's like the day in the life of like, you know, medical researcher from what you've seen and, and maybe in a different, a uh, couple different scenarios. Oh, man. Well, I can tell you from the start, lots of meetings. Oh, boy, are you in meetings all day? Hey, you should come but to work with me. It, 
It's a lot of meetings. I would love to. um, It's actually the most rewarding thing. I can tell you my days. Sometimes I have a very lax day. I can wake up eight, nine o'clock, have a normal day. And I'll be honest, sometimes I'm up at 530. Sometimes I'm up at 130. Working on Australian time zones, you will see that sometimes some meetings you have to be at and they're international. You know, our operations are out of AU, US and the EU. So we are across the spectrum. But a typical day for me is just waking up and taking a look first and foremost at the news. I like to read the news, what's new in the biotech realm, particularly in pharmaceutical biotech. What are the new devices that are out? What are new indications that we're seeing trends for illnesses, injuries? What is the main problem that people are most concerned about and how can we help treat it? Because that's where the innovation is going to stem from, is treating an existing problem, right? And so for me, that's the first thing I do when I start off my day. That's going to give me ideas of how we may need to tailor our meds or develop our meds or present ideas to our science scientific team. Hey, what do you think about developing a drug to do this or developing a drug to do that? So that's probably majority of my time is doing that. The second half of it is now connecting with our U.S. providers, you know, talking to our U.S. docs. Hey, we have this amazing drug or we have a developmental drug. We see here's the data on it. Here's the bioavailability efficacy, all of this fun stuff about this drug. Do you think you have a population that would benefit from utilizing it? You know, we're trying to bring over innovation and technology into the U.S., but I'll be honest with you, the U.S., yes, it's the gold standard when it comes to research and having these drugs and running its clinical trials, but it is also very stringent um, when it comes to certain types of drugs or the chemical compounds utilized in the drugs. For example, we have opioids. You guys are familiar. We utilize them in the army. You know, we have the ketamines, the morphines, you know, we have hydrocodone. Uh, No problem getting those to run trials, right? But then you have something that's unconventional, a little bit newer to the research realm where it's you're utilizing cannabis, whether it's THC, CBD, then you have an issue utilizing those drugs um, and developing you know, delivery methods utilizing that component, um, the DEA and the FDA has issues with that. But when we take a step back, it's not because it's an issue of what the chemical compounds are. It's how is it going to impact big pharma? So a lot of my job looks at how can we bring over these unconventional drugs and indications and bring them into the States without causing such an uproar on the legality side. So I'd like to think I do it all. Sometimes I do. <laughs> um, sometimes it's a, it's really a lot of it is working alongside the FDA and the DEA and running these clinical trials, showing efficacy of the drug that, hey, this drug belongs on the market. It should be able to be prescribed. Proving that in phase one, two, three, three B, four trials, and then bringing that drug to market. I know that... Uh... There's like so much with, you know, controversy with pharma and and probably so much lobbying. And and uh, I don't know if you get into like the the legal or political, you know, aspects of it versus just doing the best science and trying to present your findings like that. Absolutely. I'm very science driven. I'm heavily science driven, but I'm also very common sense driven, too, which I don't think the world has enough of these days. And it sucks that we have assigned, and I hate to use that word sucks, but there's no other word to describe how it makes you feel, is that we assign 
everything to a political spectrum these days. We can't just do something to do something for the greater good. Uh, everything has to be lobbied and it has to have a political agenda behind it. I think for me, I'm willing to run trials on anything. And if it works, let's get it to the people. If it doesn't, let's pull it off the market. If there's an alternative, let's run a comparison study. So I'm very science driven, not so much politically driven. When you, uh, in uh, one of your videos, we watched, you talk about like a multi-mode approach to uh, pain management. And it sounds like, you know, based on what you just said, you're you're just looking at like the best outcome. Um, So I know that traditionally, like I tell it actually, yeah, I could probably tell it here. Um, I got my wisdom teeth out when I was like 24 or 25. And uh, the army dentist was this like super old dude. Uh, My teeth came like right out uh, and not because they were like rotting or anything. I just maybe have a big mouth. But um, he get you know he gave me like fifty Percocets and wrote a script for like five refills without even like checking in. I'm like, dude, this is gonna you know like later that day I was fine. Like that is you know terrible. And I think that's before all of the uh, controversies came out or not you know controversy, but like um you know, before the scandals and everything, we actually right. knew the term like opioid epidemic. I also know Definitely. several people who've had like, you know, some pretty gruesome injuries. We've had a few on the show here who talk about like, you know, kicking their addiction was um, even like tougher than the recovery from the injury, or, you know, I don't want to downplay it, but like as tough as yeah. recovering from the injury. One guy even said like, after I, after I quit pills, I had to quit smoking, but that was a little easier. Um, so, you know, given that you have this personal connection with the military and that, and then, you know, you're probably privy to a lot of these stories too. Like, uh, I'm trying to go somewhere with a question here. So bear with me because I've been rambling, <laughs> but like, you know, when no, you go fine. back to this multi-mode approach, finding the best group of interventions to use, like, are you taking the whole soldier into account or the whole patient into account? And how are you like communicating that to the other people that you work with who maybe don't have this perspective? I'll stop now and listen. Absolutely. For no, 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 absolutely. So I'm really glad you bring that up. That's actually a big reason why I chose to take on the position that I did is because they wanted me to head up the veteran side of the house, the soldier side of the house. I do have a personal connection. You're absolutely right. You know, I suffer from my own chronic pains and aches, but nowhere near that of those of your caliber who have done the things that you have done and come back with injuries that they've come back with. Like you had mentioned in your example, you were given 50 Percocet for something that you probably just needed four for max. Back then, the dosing guidelines for opioids was almost non-existent. It was very loose. Your PCP, a dentist, anybody could just prescribe them. And I think that was the basis of where that epidemic really had started. There was no regulation or guidelines of how much do I give this person for how long. It has changed heavily since then. Now there's almost a fear to prescribe those, those opioids, which they do have their place in society. I do think that they need to be here 
it doesn't need to be as prevalent as it is. You know, if someone has this major surgery they're recovering from, you better give them that morphine or you better give them that hydrocodone. They're going to need it. Tylenol is not going to cut it. So I do think, like I said, it has its place, but there's guidelines now. But the fear has been so instilled that docs are like, here's one. I'm going to refer you to a pain management specialist or, you know, we're going to send you to the specialist specialist. Well, now these PMR docs are so overloaded that sometimes they're not even getting to these patients and these patients need they really do need that opioid therapy. Now, when I talk about the soldier perspective, yes, I think, is it overprescribed in the military to this day? To an extent, I do. I do think that we can work on cutting back what kinds of drugs we give post-op, you know, if we're looking at a minor procedure versus a major procedure. There's enough research that's been conducted um, to show which procedures have that indication for that type of prescription versus those who don't. But yeah, we do. I did talk about that total soldier concept. Look, these drugs, they may numb the physical pain, but they're also impacting them psychologically. If you really look at these uh, individuals who are taking opioids long term, it changes the brain chemistry. It changes their entire personality. And you will see it as they become go through withdrawals, how much it has impacted their life. I'm sure if you've had friends experience it, they will tell you they were almost like a zombie going through that withdrawal process or even in the process. For me, it's finding this drug or this ability to cut out giving the opioid or doing a complementary therapy to the opioid so you're not taking a higher dosage, you're not taking more than you need, um, a non-addictive alternative, uh, something that doesn't impact or have these side effects on our body the way an opioid does. I want to restore, I want to have something or to help develop something that restores the soldier's ability to have a quality life without all of those unnecessary things that come with taking an opioid, whether it's the addiction, the side effects, the GI issues, give them a drug that they can even take every day and it's a non-addictive formula. That is, for me, is the end goal uh, for what I do in the company I work for, is restore that health, optimal performance, minimize the addictive issues. Before we uh, dive further into, uh, you know, the, mm-hmm. the weed talk, does is some yes. of that... Also, just like, you know, like being chemically constructed or or just going to be different than an opioid. And, you know, Absolutely. what kind of like mix uh, of uh, of substances are you, you know, would you would you like kind of lay out if you were explaining like a, you know, multi-drug approach to someone? Absolutely. So if we're going to do a multi-drug approach to somebody, you want to know that, hey, they're not going to have a contraindication with another drug they're taking or if they're most PTSD patients, they're also on some type of psychiatric drug, right? Um, or they're on an antidepressant. There's a multitude, you know, of drugs that they follow these algorithms that uh, the VA does follow. They do have an algorithm. Okay, if this doesn't work, we'll do this. If this doesn't work, we'll do this. And it has to coincide with the other drugs you're taking. For this, for what I would like to develop is that you develop one drug, minimal contraindications with other drugs unless probably the one that I'm thinking of that would be under development really would be more contraindicative with chemotherapy drugs, not so much PTSD drugs. And, you know, create something that provides a balance that's going to give you the relief without the side effects that in this particular, in this particular case, if we're talking about THC or CBD, you're not going to get that high. You're just going to get the chronic pain relief. That's what we would want is it happening yet? I think it is. There's a lot of companies trying to come up with that. Uh, but for soldiers, the biggest issue I think we face is DOD. 
we get drug tested in the army. You know, you pop pot for this, you're going to get in trouble. So how do we work with that? How do we work with the DOD to provide a solution? But then now we have to rewrite their rules that have been in place since the since the Stone Age, pretty much. (laughs) Yeah, I heard you talking about like the VA won't prescribe cannabis products, but you can like sign up to be part of a tests or trial. Yes and no. So you're very close on that one. So yes, the VA, because it's a federal institution, right? It's regulated at the federal level. They follow under federal rules, not state rules. So the VA cannot prescribe VA docs. If you work there, you're registered with the VA. That's where your primary place of work is. You cannot prescribe cannabis in any shape or form. You can work with, you can be very transparent, let's say in California, where it is legal to utilize cannabis recreationally. Um, Veterans can use cannabis. Absolutely. They can be taking it, but they can also talk to their VA doc about it and say, hey, I'm, you know, smoking this much or I'm inhaling this much or I'm, you know, ingesting edibly with an edible this much. Let's can we talk about designing my treatment plan around that? Absolutely. They can do that. They will not lose their benefits over that. Um, The docs will work with their treatment plan. There's a lot of fear that vets think, oh, if I tell my doc that I'm using weed, I'm going to lose my benefits. And that is definitely not the case in a state where it is legalized. Hmm. I, uh, so I never had like any, you know, gruesome, uh, battlefield injuries or anything like that. I'm just your Mm -hmm. typical, like, you know, my neck and back are trash along with some other stuff. (laughs) Uh, I had friends that like swore by CBD and I tried it, uh, unless the person doing my clearance is listening, then this is entertainment only. Um, uh, which I, yeah, um, is probably not the case, but, uh, like how do you like start the conversation about talking with cannabis products with somebody who's like first exposure or, uh, just wants to like, you know, understand from, um, from, you know, like a, a, a very professional level. Absolutely. So the first thing I absolutely do is evaluate their knowledge on the topic. I say, what do you what do you use right now? Let's say you're my patient and you're experiencing this as from a patient perspective before I get into a provider perspective. As a patient, generationally, there's certain taboos around cannabis. So I do like to gauge their knowledge and say, hey, what are you using right now? You know, is it working for you? Are you open to discussing alternative therapies? And that opens that door for, okay, what do you know about medical cannabis? I know there's a taboo. I try to meet them halfway, whether I know if they, I know they have some type of, you know, I guess like belief about it. I like to gauge that and I try to pick at it slowly and introduce the topic that way because I can say, here's a lot of research that's conducted here are clinical trials. There's scientific evidence. Here's CBD. There's different versions of CBD, whether you're using a synthetically derived one versus, you know, a botanically derived one. One's going to offer you the stability and a consistent delivery, whereas the other one's not. You don't know what kind of batch you got. You might get something that's effective now that may not be effective later. Um, in a different batch. So I try to teach, do a little bit of teaching before I really dive into, okay, let's talk about this as part of your therapy regimen. Let's try weaning you off this or complementing your therapy with this type of CBD or this type of, you know, whether it's a THC, if they're open to THC, CBD, um, there is a ratio and they are now just establishing guidelines for that type of treatment. But yeah, definitely. It's really about making the individual feel comfortable in the environment to talk about it and opening that dialogue 
with whether it's statistically driven or if it's just opinions. Some people just want to be heard. And when they're heard, if you offer knowledge, they like to soak it back in and think about it. Yeah. I, I mean, CBD didn't work for me, but I trust the people that it does work for. I, uh, I had someone else take, tell me to start taking like curcumin or like turmeric, which I think helped a little bit. <laughs> um, so maybe I'm just fighting some chronic inflammation. Who knows? It's not an episode where we diagnose Matt. Oh no, I guess where that's why Indian food works for me. Cause it has a lot of turmeric. Okay. So that makes sense now. <laughs> All right, maybe I need to, uh, get on that train. Maybe you should just switch yeah, foods. Uh, <laughs> um, I was going to joke about taking ivermectin for it, but we're going to get the whole show pulled <laughs> Ben. So, uh, sorry <laughs> if this causes any uh, trouble. That's um, funny. do we, uh, do we want to talk about like, uh, hallucinogenics? I think Ben just texted me that. Yeah, we can definitely touch um, on that. Any, any like use in the pain management spectrum or more psychological or do, or is there like a synergistic effect? Oh, I think it's a little bit of both, but I think it's more on the psychotherapy side of the house. There is a company that is pushing that recently was featured on, I think Joe Rogan's podcast, if I'm not mistaken. I say that because maps PBC uh, is just coming onto the spectrum. They're a nonprofit company that specializes in PTSD therapy. They're the only ones, I think, to break the mold of being able to work with the VA in the future. But don't quote me on that. I think they're working on that contract to utilize uh, psychedelics, uh, particularly MDMA, um, with co-assisted with psychotherapy to treat PTSD symptoms, not just mask them, but actually treat them. They did have a study that was recently published. I think it was like a phase three study um, that was recently published and they're opening up multiple more locations for soldiers to get enrolled into veterans in particular to be enrolled into to undergo that MDMA slash psychedelic induced um, therapy to to gauge the treatment um, effectiveness of that treatment. If you're not like the expert, let me know. But uh, what what would you again <laughs> like if you if someone had like no knowledge about it, their buddy told them about it and they're like, hey, you know, how should I think about this stuff? Like, is it as like, Absolutely. you know, jumping in myself, trying it out? What would you what would that talk sound like? I think that it would sound a lot like research. And I, I know that I do research and so I'm going to say that as my answer, but I really do mean that. And I say research, research is going to be your answer, whether you're Googling it. My biggest advice is to see if you want to see if a trial has been published or it's open, or if you want to learn anything about a cl clinical trial, you go to the source, you go to clinicaltrials.gov and you type in the trial, whatever it may be, you can type in the indication and you can pull up all the trials and data that was resulted from it. They have trials that have closed and you can research it and read it. I recently just told a really good friend about of mine about that, um, about the phase three trial that MAPS will be running in their cities for PTSD treatment. I said, hey, I know this is not something that is traditionally spoken about, but take a look at the take a look at the publications, take a look at the data. Uh, a lot of us in the military, we love evidence. We like to believe things based on what we've seen and it's been proven. But a lot of us have a hard time reading. Well, yeah. <laughs> We're a little bit smarter than that. Uh, um, if we can figure out which side our name tapes go on, I'm pretty sure we can figure out a few okay. other things. Maybe so, I'll learn um, life. <laughs> so I say, talk to people. I say, just talk. Open up the dialogue. You know, we military is a huge community. You can pretty much find it whether it's a Reddit article or you're on a Facebook group chat or if you're 
just board on Google. Uh, if you're really interested in something that you feel personally affected by, you'll find a way to find an answer. And I think that goes for anybody. Um, so for me personally, research is what's, I think that's why I got into research is I wanted to find solutions for my own issues. And because I was able to find it through published publish data and data synthesis and saying, oh man, you know, this trial worked, I'm going to do it. And guess what? It works for me. That's what I want to bring to other people. Uh, I want to talk about like, you know, the professional aspect going back from the mill or the, uh, sorry, uh, from the, uh, medicinal aspect, but you know, you talk mm -hmm. about working for an international company, which comes with like different cultures, different time zones, different ways of working. I'm sure you have, you know, all that to, uh, all, all that to deal with too. And then, mm -hmm. um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you might have some plans on, on, you know, going back to school to study like business too. And so yeah. I guess one, you know, managing work now with, with, uh, that kind of uniqueness, uh, to the place you work and then going from having, you know, having gone to school twice for, uh, you know, medical to then going to business. What, where did that come from? Yeah, absolutely. So I think coming back to your question regarding cultural changes, cultural shifts, it was very, I have to tell you, the Australian culture is very different, very welcoming. Uh, they're definitely more laid back than we are here in the States. Uh, very few formalities compared to what we have here. I can tell you probably one of the best work cultures, work-life balance I have ever been a part of in my entire life. People understand there that we we live and we work, but we don't work to live. You know, we I'm sorry, we don't we don't live to work. We work to live. Um, it is not something that should take up 90 percent of your life. And I think that's what I really enjoyed about them. So I actually do go above and beyond for them, not because I'm expected to, because I actually thoroughly enjoy my job. It's very interesting. At the same time, the benefits with that is they have invested in me the opportunity to travel and speak. Uh, they saw potential in me that I didn't even recognize that I had um, to work for a company that sees that and not just what's on your resume. You know, a lot of people, they see, okay, you have this, 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 and certifications, cool, we'll put you in this position. For them, they're like, you have all of this experience. What can we use that as collectively to make you even better, to take you to that next level? And very rarely do you have an institution or organization that wants to do that for you and sees you as an individual uh, to develop. So I think that was really amazing to be a part of a culture like that. In addition to that, I think what has pushed me now going into this MBA side of the house, because, you know, I thought I only knew medical and I only stayed in that realm because I was like, oh, I know this. This is going to be easy. I can do medicine. It's the same anatomy, physiology. Nothing's changed in the body. They haven't discovered a new bone. It'll be okay. So I think I stayed in that comfort zone too long to the point where I was like, oh, I think I should just get a PhD in nursing or I should do, um, I should just go get my MD. I think what really inspired me for business is now that I'm taking over this director position, I realized, you know, it's a lot more management, healthcare management, um, running your U.S. operations. Things are very different here. And, you know, hopefully I wanted to gain the ability to, to understand how that works. Operational management um, is different. It's a completely different spectrum than that of which I'm in now. 
And I don't think I would be able to do it unless I had a foundation. So that's why I chose um, to now pursue my master's in business administration with the healthcare management focus, just because I needed something to give me a foundation to make sure I'm doing my job, but doing it correctly. Uh, if And they offered it to me. They said, hey, there's an opportunity for you to do this. Let's Let's make it happen. And so I took it. I mean, why not, right? Let's just add it to the list uh, of something else that I can learn. Um, if it's not going to better me, it can help me better other people in the future. So Ben and I went to business school together and we had a, a whole host of, um, you know, doctors uh, coming in and, uh, you know, pharmacists and, and uh, you know, whoever else. And for a few different reasons, but a lot of the doctors would say like, well, you know, uh, in a few years, our hospital is going to need a new CEO and I'd rather it be me, a doctor, mm -hmm. than, um, you know, some kind of like senior level administrator. And I think their view was yeah. that you you want someone who understands the patients and understands the practitioners as well as the systems, but not just the systems. And so, you know, you do have that background as a medic and as someone who's put hands on patients. Uh, so, you know, I imagine that you have some of the same motivation there. You know, I'll make you laugh. I really did want that. I wanted to be, initially I was like, yeah, I'm definitely gonna be a CEO by the time I'm 35, 36. I wanna be the youngest CEO. I was very driven to go down that route. As I started to take on these roles in more of a senior level management area, I saw that I'm losing touch with my ability to connect with a patient. Now I'm metrics driven, I'm heavily metrics driven. Um, I'm heavily driven about networking, um, business relationships. I'm starting to lose touch with what put me in this position in the first place. And if you asked me two, three years ago, do you want to be a CEO of a company one day? I said, absolutely. If you asked me now, I would tell you probably not. I would like to stay in this position until I retire because it gives me a healthy balance of being able to connect with patients and then bringing that perspective to the management side and saying, what can I do better here? at this level, that's gonna impact that patient at that level. The further you move up, the further you get away from patient care. I'm sure you know this with all your experience and that is not something I was willing to give up. Not now, not ever in my career. I still wanna have some type of understanding what is my patient going through? Cause God forbid one day I am gonna be a patient. And if that senior administrator or that CEO doesn't understand what I'm going through at this level or the nurses or the docs, how are they gonna make my life any better? So I definitely intend to stay in a director, maybe a COO position somewhere where at a company where it allows me to still have that, you know, movement both laterally um, and up and down and then horizontally. I just want to be able to make sure I can freely move and connect with all the individuals that I, I, I want to and I need to um, because I don't think I'd be true to myself and I don't think I would be really true to the cause that I started this that I started for in the in the first place. Yeah, it just brings me back to my, you know, former comment on like a very uh, vocational focus, which I think is uh, yes. is just you know, like a great North Star, I think, uh, hearing you talk over all these phases um, of your life so far. Uh, we have our question that we ask everybody who comes on the show that we kind of save oh. like to near the end. But um, we want to know, <laughs> who are you today if you never served? Who am I today if I never served? I would be a wife and a mother and nothing more. I would not be educated. And I don't knock wives and mothers because I think that's an amazing role and responsibility. But I would not be cultured. I would not be 
compassionate, empathetic, sympathetic. Uh, most importantly, I wouldn't be accomplished. In my eyes, I would feel like I would not be accomplished. Um, and to me, that's devastating to say because my parents came from a culture, particularly my mother, that heavily emphasizes a woman's ability to take care of a home so much so that they don't have the, I think, the self-confidence to go into what I just, what I went into. And I've only lived for 29 years now. It's a very short life for me. And to say, looking back, I'm always wondering, oh, I still have so much more to do. And I feel like I haven't accomplished anything. I look back at what I've done in the last 10 years alone. And I'm like, some people don't even do this in their entire life. And it's a constant reminder that, okay, you have done something. You aren't nothing. Um, so without the military, I would not be in research. Without the military, I would not be a nurse. Um, I'd be honest, I might just be, I might just be a doctor. I might just be a a wife and I might just have five kids. And and to me, for me, that's not enough. I will always have that passion to want more. I will always have that unmet need of wanting more. So because of the military, man, I have a husband, I have a home, I have more school, I have a career that I never thought I would have in a million years. It almost sounds like uh, it was kind of you reaching uh, exit velocity and um, you said something earlier on in our chat, uh, you know, you said like my, you know, talking about my community, well, that's what used to be my community, not my community now. So how do you, you know, what would you say your community is now, um, you know, versus what it was kind of destined to be? And then not even just with, you know, all the, all the lasting friendships connection from the military, but like, um, you know, meeting, meeting more people, even civilians, uh, that you never thought you'd meet people from overseas, people from work. How are you building that community now? Absolutely. So, you know, I'd like, I know I said they aren't my community now. I meant it in a way that that's not somebody I, it's not a community I associate myself with on a day-to-day -day basis. Like I did growing up, you know, I'll live quite a ways away from them. And I respect them because each of them have overcome challenges coming from a completely foreign country and establishing themselves here. And that in its own is its own accomplishment, I think. Not just surviving, but thriving. So I do commend those individuals for it. But to me, that was not enough for me. I didn't face those challenges. So I don't associate myself with a community where complacency is okay, where being stagnant is okay. I like to associate myself with people that are constantly have a drive to want more and need more. I found that within the military community, they're never, we're never satisfied. We always want to do more. We need to do more. It's kind of an innate drive in us that this isn't enough. We have to be better because we were programmed to become that way that, you know, your best isn't enough. You have to be more than that. And so as I've established my own community now in Texas, you know, a lot of my friends, even in, in, in nursing school, when I went through nursing school, a lot of them were military. You know, they had gotten out of the military. They were coming through it and they were facing the same challenges as me uh, in different ways, but similar. And establishing myself within that community, now I see those same individuals on the same drive that I have. They're the ones pushing me to be better. I'm competing with them. They're my friends, but they're constantly, we're constantly pushing each other to do more. And I think it's, you are the product of the environment that you surround yourself with. If you surround yourself with a complacency, you become a complacent person because you're, that's what you're around. So you think that's okay. That's not a, an environment that I like to be around. Uh, I like to see people doing more. 
doing better? Okay, what are you doing, not just for yourself, but for those around you? What are you doing to impact the world? I think the military, particularly in the army, we have this amazing culture that kind of teaches us do more, be more, keep doing more. And as we get out, I've seen some soldiers do amazing things, more so on the outside than I ever saw them do on the inside. I'm like, where was this when you were when you were with me, you know, you could have not, you would have avoided so much trouble. Um, but I think you find this, I guess they found their passion. You find your passion when you get out and seeing the culture that we've kind of, I don't want to say we brought out with us, but I think we've developed and introduced to civilians around us. I think that also pushes our civilian counterparts to want to do more. I know that my friends who are civilian that didn't serve uh, being around me, they're like, oh, you've done so much. I want to do more. And I, what can I do? Or where do I start? And I actually had another friend to start nursing school. She's like, you did it. Why can't I do it, you know, as a second career? And so she's in nursing school. She's about to finish. I have another one that transitioned out of um, a really random career into research. I've brought people on into my company. I brought two more people on into my company to work within research. So I think it's, for me, it's really important not just to be a part of a community, but you can be a part of any community. It's how I think it's, I want to shape it and I want to help it. And I want to kind of help it grow. Um, you can have whatever community you want. Just depends on what you contribute to it. I think. Yeah. I, uh, I, I noticed like a shift at some point where I was the guy who was giving advice to people getting out of the military simply because I had done it before them to where I'm just giving the guy giving advice to people and they, didn't even have to be out of the military. And I think, you know, yeah. had enough just being a regular person to, uh, to kind of like have more people like, you know, irrespective of the military background kind of, you know, coming in and joining too. Uh, and I, that was, yeah. uh, it was pretty gratifying when I realized that. Oh yeah, definitely. I can tell you when I transitioned out or even just while I was in the service, I can't tell you all those people that once upon a time left from my community, they said, oh, you're not going to make it or, you, you know, you're not. What are you doing? This isn't for you. And when I graduated and I started actually working and that being my job and they saw that I had made it and not only survived it, but really thrived within that position, it felt really good because it was like a, I told you so moment without having to say it. And it showed them that you can be successful just as successful if not more and have many more opportunities presented going this route than that traditional route you know and for me that was everything for me if you were to ask me what my greatest accomplishment was up to this point is just showing that hey as an indian woman because I, i'll tell you what i can count on one hand how many indian women are in the military uh and how many of them are from my background there's this many two of them uh, so to be able to say that and to thrive and have a successful life and also marry out of the culture and have a successful marriage and a life partner, it was a lot of things that I have proven wrong to that community over time. And I think for me, that's what still drives me is to continue that, to keep showing them I can do better. I am more. I have amounted to more. And my parents now look at me and say, oh, my God, you have done so much um, in your short amount of time where even they had come to the States and they, yeah, they settled in a new country, but I don't think it amounts to how much, or if you're going to measure it, it doesn't amount to how much uh, you go through with the army. Cause it's like I said, it's a lifestyle change that I went through. I went from one lifestyle to the army back to a different lifestyle. It was a huge shift for me. I have been able to see the sunset 
in your background as this uh I was just going to tell you, I'm going to go turn the light on if you want to give me a moment. <laughs> okay. Uh, as this interview has gone on. So you already said that you got a few dogs, which uh, we love here. Um, Noah said that you ride motorcycles too. And I'm sure you do a bunch of stuff outside because, you know, military and, and you and your husband are probably super active, but uh, you're probably one of the one of the you know few people that you can count on one hand who's riding a motorcycle around too, huh? <laughs> yes, I do ride a motorcycle. So my husband is actually a huge basis of what got us to start All talking. Right. It's because I was giving him quite a bit of lip about how he rides a Harley, and I was like, "Oh my God, you ride a Harley? What are you like fifty with a midlife crisis?" Because I'm over here. Um, I have a Ducati. I have a Ducati Superbike, and. Uh, I thought I was hot shit, mind my language. <laughs> I thought I was hot shit. So I was like, oh, I can talk and say whatever I want. And boy, did he meet me with the same responses. So I do ride a motorcycle. Um, I love, that's pretty much what we do in our free time. We like to go throughout hill country. Um, I can tell you I don't ride much in California because I don't have a death wish with the splitting lanes mm. here. But back home in Texas, we ride quite a bit. What, so... Wait, you rode before you met him. So what got you into it? Mm -hmm. Just hanging around other people uh, in the military, you like pull up on their bike and you're like, Hey, I need, I need to learn. I mean, that's, I didn't ride, uh, when I was a kid, like dirt bikes or anything. I was, mm -hmm. you know, from the city. Um, and you know, I had a teammate who would just always be on his bike and I was like, why don't I, I need to like learn how to ride just because, you know, why am I on four wheels when I could be on two? I grew up um, pretty country. I grew up country girl. So for me, it was a lot of my friends had dirt bikes and quads. And, you know, my dad was a very adventurous person. So we would go out to like the sand dunes and coastal California and go four wheeling and all of that fun stuff. And he kind of instilled in me young to have an adrenaline issue. I just I always had an adrenaline problem. I love mm -hmm. adrenaline. So uh, you guess you can call me adrenaline junkie. Uh, that's my vice. But I grew up around it. Growing up in that sheltered lifestyle, I did everything possible to rebel. Motorcycle was one of them. But once I got on it, I never got off. You know, I've had my accidents. I've had issues with them, but I just can't seem to shake it. I guess not. A, I guess the accident wasn't bad enough. Um, but it's the sense of liberation. So when every time I ride a bike, I just feel free. And it feels nice to have no inhibitions and to be so target focused on riding uh, you kind of forget about everything else going on in life. Yeah. I, I would say if you gave me like a one word association test with motorcycles, it would just be freedom. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. For me, it's, I do that and I ride horses. Um, I like to snowboard and ski and anything that gets me outside. Really. I like to just be outside. Awesome. Well, uh, oh, yeah. this has been one of the most unique, uh, conversations we've had so far you know, not just on the cultural stuff, but like on the, uh, you know, on the post-military career and just, you know, your whole outlook on life. Um, I know people are going to love it. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. I just really hope that people understand that you can come from any background and be successful. It's just what you choose to do with the opportunities presented. I took advantage of everything that was given to me. And a lot of people don't realize it, but the army is so full of opportunities and, they just let time pass them by. And I'm like, you know, there's so many things you can do. And when you get out, you can have so many skills. They'll pay for it. So just the ability to 
really hopefully harp that on people is you can get out of the military. You can do anything you want. It's just how, you know, you just got to work for it. It's not going to be handed to you. That's fantastic. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks again for being on and, um, we'll hope to catch up at some time or, uh, or definitely yeah. see you later. Thank you. Thank you, Sonny. Uh-huh. That was awesome. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Sonny improving patient outcomes through compassionate care and careful research. We didn't do a commercial break this episode because we're getting back into the swing of things. Maybe a shorter episode, but if you are new to the show, you can find out everything about us at thankyounowwhat.com. Uh, you can follow our guests and us and stay up to date on what we're doing on Instagram at thankyounowwhat. Um, also, if you go back to the website, you can find all of our older episodes. Uh, you can find a page for the nonprofits that we like to support and definitely check them out as well. Um, if you would like to join us in contributing to the cost of doing business, uh, there are a couple ways that you can do it. On our website, you're going to see a couple of links to either PayPal or Patreon. On PayPal, you can do a one-off donation or a recurring donation. Both are great. If you choose to become a patron of ours, you can head to patreon.com slash thank you now what or follow the link from the website. Uh, if you're a patron, you can subscribe to any dollar tier, I think $1 and up. Um, and uh, you'll get a list of perks that we have listed on the website. As always, thanks for listening to us. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow us, and join us next time on Thank You Now What.